This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back from another short seasonal hiatus. This week, we sort out the complex next steps in Colombia's peace deal and we'll discuss the deterioration of democracy in Nicaragua. But first, Jim Singer is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Brazil's Senate found suspended President Dilma Rousseff guilty this week and voted to remove her from office. The Senate convicted her of misleading Congress about the country's economic problems and illegally shifting funds to cover shortfalls without congressional approval. Michel Temer became the country's president after the Senate vote, and he addressed Brazil in a televised speech. I'm assuming the presidency of Brazil after a democratic and transparent decision by the National Congress. The time is one of hope and resumption of confidence in Brazil. Uncertainty has come to an end. Temer has served as the country's interim president since May. He also served as Rousseff's vice president before she was impeached by Congress. Temer's approval rating is better than the marks the public gave Rousseff before she was suspended, but only 19% approve of his performance. And Temer will be remembered for the boos he received during the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Rio. This is the second time Brazil's Congress has removed a president through impeachment since 1980. Hundreds of thousands of protesters poured into the streets of Caracas this week, some showing anger against the government and others supporting President Nicolas Maduro. Opposition groups organized their protests to pressure the government to speed up a recall petition drive against the president. Those groups initiated the process through a petition drive with more than a million signatures asking for Maduro to step down. The government and its socialist supporters organized massive counter-demonstrations to show many still support the president. Venezuela suffers from chronic food shortages and soaring inflation. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump made a surprise trip to Mexico City this week, and he came away with some unexpected results. Political commentators in both countries said that the trip allowed Trump to refocus his campaign on the theme of unauthorized immigration, the political cause that vaulted him ahead of the pack of Republicans running for president in the United States this year. And despite his heated rhetoric that characterized Mexicans as criminals, Trump received good reviews for his diplomacy and grace in meeting with Mexico's president Enrique Peña Nieto. However, pundits criticized Peña Nieto for extending an invitation to Trump. Mexicans wanted Trump to apologize for his various insults against them. Many criticized Mexico's president for making a political mistake and said he was trying to create a distraction from his own problems. Mexico's president has an approval rating of just 23 percent. He had also invited Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, but she declined the offer. Donald Trump isn't the only politician complaining that some folks don't appreciate his sense of humor. Now add Peru's new president to the list. 77-year-old Pedro Pablo Kuczynski is already getting in hot water in the media for some of his controversial remarks. The president chalks it up to what he calls his British sense of humor. Kaczynski was educated in the U.K. and lived in London for long stretches. His parents were Swiss and Polish immigrants to Peru. For instance, last week a judge ruled Peruvian clinics could issue an emergency contraceptive pill, a controversial move in a strongly Catholic country. 
but a step at answering the public concerns over the Zika virus. Kaczynski took the occasion to suggest the judge had better contact the country's cardinal first before his ruling could go into effect. Despite his awkward jokes, Peruvians love the new president. His approval rating is at 70%, more support than he had in Peru's close elections this summer. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jim Singer. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Montreal, Canada. Our listening group in Montreal was our third largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia, and our listening group in Mexico City. So we say merci beaucoup to all of our listeners in Montreal and elsewhere around the globe. And now catching up on one of the biggest stories while we were away, the peace deal that could spell the end for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, one of two active insurgent groups who have carried out the country's civil war for the past 52 years. Colombia's government and the FARC have reached a peace pact, and Colombians will vote on a referendum covering the peace deal in October. Meanwhile, the other rebel group, the National Liberation Army, called the ELN by their Spanish initials, well, that rebel group remains active, and Colombia's former president, Alvaro Uribe, is campaigning against the peace deal. We asked Adam Isaacson at the Washington office on Latin America, WOLA, for his analysis of the peace agreement. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Yeah, this peace Accord is not official until this October 2nd referendum takes place when the Colombian people go out to vote and whether, yes or no, whether they approve or not of the accord that was reached. And, you know, personally, if I had to bet money, uh, I would bet money that it will pass and it will pass with a reasonably strong margin. Uh, the main reason for that is they're going to hold it. October 2nd is probably maybe seven, eight or nine days or so after the big, massive international ceremony with maybe even Vice President Biden in attendance in Bogota, luminaries everywhere, where um, the sides go up and formally sign the accord. Um, The vote would then be happening amid a backdrop of a UN verification mission getting stood up and guiding um, what will be the ultimate six-month disarmament of the FARC. Um, Maybe you'd see images of FARC members um, starting to pour into 31 different concentration zones around the country where they'd be vacating um, the areas that they had long occupied. It'd be hard for uh, a lot of Colombians to vote no um, seeing all of that and being in sort of that honeymoon period. However, the reasons to vote no, um, uh, they're the opponents of this process. Um, We'll have have some reasons to to point to. like any negotiated accord. This is not a surrender accord. This is a, a an actual accord to convince a group to demobilize. The Colombian government had to give some things. And probably the two most painful things the Colombian government had to give, one, FARC members, as well as military members who are accused of um, serious war crimes, are going to serve as long as they confess everything they did and make uh, make reparations to their victims. They're going to serve terms of what is not jail. Um, they're calling it restriction of liberty, and we still don't know how harsh or austere or how luxurious that's going to be for only five to eight years. The second painful concession is that the FARC, starting in 2018, for two four-year congressional periods, will have at least an automatic 10 members of Congress, uh, five in the House and five in the Senate, um, no matter how many votes they actually get as a political party. Um, so there's a prospect of 
you know, war criminals basically reporting to a, their duty in the Senate and then going back to their restricted liberty at night, which is a strange uh, image. So those two concessions may induce some Colombians to vote no. I don't think the majority, but there are some very vocal politicians in Colombia, like the former president, who's still pretty popular, Alvaro Uribe in Colombia, urging them uh, very strongly to vote no. Um, so it's not going to be a landslide or a blowout in favor of yes, but I do think that yes will win because of the overall climate. We, we certainly see people in the streets in Colombia waving Colombian flags, waving signs that say pause, peace. But I wonder, this is certainly the biggest armed group in, in Colombia that, that they are dealing with, but, but this doesn't mean that there's an end to this 52 years of conflict. Um, what this means is the end of the FARC as a generator of violence. We're speaking on, on August 29th, and at midnight today, the FARC announced that it was ceasing every kind of hostility, um, down to extortion of shop owners, everything, um, uh, as of today. And, you know, the FARC is the only group in Colombia, really one of the only groups in all of Latin America, that has the capability to carry out violence, especially political violence, on a national level. Um, Colombia will still have violent groups that are regional. Um, the ELN, another guerrilla group uh, that also started in the 1960s, the National Liberation Army, only has about 1,500 or 2,000 members and probably will not grow very much, um, but uh, is, is a factor in a few regions of the country, um, particularly near the Panamanian and Venezuelan borders. Um, there is, as there has been for 30, 40 years, there is very strong organized crime in Colombia, um, what they call criminal bands. Um, some of them uh, sort of the heirs of mid-level leaders of the old um, pro-government paramilitary groups that were active in the 90s and early 2000s, um, they are really just there to do business. They traffic drugs, they, um, they pirate um, uh, precious metals, they do human trafficking, anything to make a buck. Um, they most usually prefer to uh, buy off or uh, buy off the state or corrupt the government rather than actually fight it. They only fight it if they're up against the wall. Um, that doesn't mean there won't be violence, though. I mean, look at Mexico as a country where you have many regionally powerful organized crime groups that occasionally fight each other with incredible bloodshed. And Colombia may not be immune to that because there are many areas of Colombia where the government's presence is weak or completely absent. Getting the FARC off the table means there's no more national-level insurgency um, trying to fight the government. Um, it does not mean that the government is necessarily going to be capable of moving into all of the um, couple hundred, really, counties of the, of the country all at once and start governing as though nothing has ever happened before. Um, and that vacuum, could, that vacuum could get filled in by um, some of these other uh, particularly regional organized crime groups. That's, that's going to happen. Um, but getting the FARC out of the picture, um, getting that large national level um, violent group out of the picture and into the political process is an important precedent and it is a necessary step for taking on Colombia's other governance and security problems. Now that the FARC may be set aside in what you've talked about there, uh, what are the prospects of peace with the ELN or victory over the ELN now that the government won't have to, to deal with the FARC? Um, the ELN is probably going to be around for a while in some form. Um, they have 
a very loose, non-hierarchical, consensus-based model of operating and, and making decisions, um, which makes them hard to negotiate with, but it also makes them not that effective on the battlefield. It's not a group that's poised to expand rapidly and sort of soak up a lot of uh, the uh, uh, areas or personnel that the FARC left behind. Uh, they're, they're more plotting in, in the way they move. Um, but this has made them very hard to negotiate with. The Colombian government has been in informal talks with the ELN um, since, I want to say, late 2013, early 2014. Um, they came to an agreement. Um, when was that? We're in August now. It was uh, in, April, in February or March of this year. An agreement on an agenda for formal talks. Like they were going to start launching formal um, peace talks with the, with the ELN. That agenda has not started. They have not even begun this formal process because the ELN is still insisting on uh, continuing the practice of kidnapping for ransom. It still has a few um, kidnap victims in its custody who it does not want to let go. Or, <laughs> we're talking about the ELN here, or who parts of the leadership have been able to convince other parts of the leadership to let go. The ELN is insisting that no, they will refuse that precondition on kidnapping and they would be happy to negotiate away uh, their practice of kidnapping once they get to the table. For the government, politically, that's a complete non-starter. Um, the, the kidnapping is something the Colombians feel very, very strongly about, understandably. Um, and they're not going to, um, it, it would be a political death for the Colombian government to uh, negotiate with a group that has kidnapped victims in its custody. And they've been stuck on this for months. And there's no hope, no sign yet that, of any breakthrough. What haven't we covered that you think is important to consider? The debate here in Washington on on, on where to go now, there is a general consensus that this peace process was the right way to go and that uh, the United States should uh, you know, get behind this uh, plan of largely non-military assistance and hold it there for a few years. The Obama administration is pretty unanimous on that. Um, the, the U.S. military seems to be getting behind it. Um, the counter-narcotics part of the State Department, well, I'm not sure. Um, they and I would say a lot of the congressional Republican leadership are supportive but quite skeptical. And the root of their skepticism right now has to do with um, the cocaine trade. Um, Colombia has been registering some very large increases in coca growing. Um, and there have been <clears throat> a, a reduction in the amount of, of coca that is forcibly eradicated. Um, record number amounts of cocaine are being seized, leaving Colombia. So that there's a bonanza of cocaine going on, and the peace process is being blamed for it. Um, the idea that Colombia is somehow letting up. Um, so I mean, it is going to be incumbent on Colombia, whether through eradication or more likely through agreements with coca-growing communities, to really reduce that amount of coca grown in the next couple of years to assuage that skepticism. Otherwise, it's going to blow up more here in Washington. There is another third group that is much more hardline against the peace process, largely the um, uh, uh, coming out of the, the congressional membership from South Florida, Ross Letnin, uh, Marco Rubio, uh, and others, uh, who have a, a, a strong, you know, they're, they're very right in, in the way they view, uh, right wing, I should say, in the way they view U.S. policy toward Latin America in general, and certainly um, uh, have the ear, uh, or rather, Alvaro Uribe and opponents of the peace talks in Colombia have had their ear for a while, and they're quite vocal, but right now are not moving the agenda. Um, and then on the liberal democratic side, I mean, there is a lot of concern 
about uh, the transitional justice effort in Colombia and whether it's going to allow um, more criminals to get off with, with a slap on the wrist. Um, if it does appear that that's going to happen, and it may be up to Colombia's courts to figure that out now, but if it appears that there's going to be a slap on the wrist, both for guerrilla human rights violators as well as those in the military, um, their support is going to fade a lot also, and they'll, they'll be less inclined to be generous uh, toward Colombia. But those are sort of the four groups, supportive, skeptically supportive, deep against and worried about human rights that sort of make up the debate right now in Washington. Thanks so much, Adam Isaacson, Washington office on Latin America, WOLA, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Join us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. It was a pleasure. Coming up, setting the stage for this fall's elections in Nicaragua. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, New cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Earlier this summer, Nicaragua's Supreme Court stepped into that country's presidential race and disqualified the leading opposition candidate, Eduardo Montalegre, of the country's Liberal Party. The Supreme Court appointed a different candidate to stand for election, Pedro Reyes, a candidate the court said was more acceptable to be president. The court is dominated by the Sandinista Party, a socialist party headed by President Daniel Ortega, who has run the country since 2007. These court actions have many saying Ortega is using the courts to manipulate the political system, a system many see as slipping from democracy into authoritarianism. We asked Manuel Orozco of the Inter-American Dialogue for his analysis. Orozco joined us via Skype from San Jose, Costa Rica. There will be elections in November um, of this year to elect a president for the next five years. The, the extent to which there will be a democracy, or there is a democracy in Nicaragua, is highly questionable. Um, if you can think of Nicaragua's democracy declining in strength, basically since, 19, since 2005, um, just years before um, Daniel Ortega was elected for the first time. From his election to the present, there's been a series of political changes, uh, restructuring of the political landscape that has reconfigured um, authority and democracy to the extent to which at this point in time, Daniel Ortega is practically um, a sole authoritarian who is ruling with his wife and his children. You mentioned 2005 and that was actually the beginning of his campaign for his second term, uh, having served for a term in the 80s. Uh, I noticed that recently the former ambassador to Nicaragua from the United States, um, writing an opinion column in the Miami Herald, talked about a story that we often hear that Castro, Fidel Castro, uh, told Daniel Ortega never to allow elections when, when he was the president in the 80s. And now, during his comeback, in this century, um, he's proved to manipulate the electoral laws in a way and stack the Supreme Court in a way 
that as you said, now he is the sole authoritarian, and I would use the word caldeo that tends to be used in Latin America. Indeed, he's a caudillo. He's built his empire um, over the past 15 years as a caudillo, relying on patron-client relationships all the way down to the top, uh, using different sorts of strategies, predominantly controlling the institutions like the Supreme Court, the electoral system, the legislature, and the executive, using mid-level uh, government officials, as well as senior uh, elected officials. He has also uh, been able to establish his patron-client relationship from the base by using um, a very clever system of subsidies to hundreds of thousands of people that receive $20 a month to $30 a month in handouts of food in a very poor country that goes very far. So he has developed a vertical and a horizontal control system that allows him, through patron-client relationships, to become the Supreme Caudillo of Nicaragua. Um, although I'm not a historian who likes to, com to compare um, past and present, but the common consensus is that Ortega has succeeded the clientelistic and the dictatorial reach of um, Anastasio Somoza dynasty. Um, now, he's basically an individual who, little by little, has been able to take over um, civil society, not just the political institutions, in ways that he has secured uh, not only the victory in the election, which wasn't in question at this point in time, but achieved supreme control of the entire uh, system. You made a mention there of Anastasio Somoza, and so I'm, I'm struck by the irony here, for those who don't follow the history of Nicaragua. Here is someone who started as a, as a guerrilla leader, the leader, one of the leaders of the Sandinistas, and, and now I guess we've come full circle in Nicaragua, haven't we? To some extent we are. Uh, I think, you know, you mentioned Fidel Castro, for example, and his advice to Ortega. The advice to Ortega at that time to not hold the elections were not within the context of because democracies are liberal democracies are not worth it. But it was more in the context of a revolution where you needed to accomplish particular goals. However, the, the, Daniel Ortega has a very particular vision of the world, a perspective that necessitates is absolute control of political power or political authority. And in doing so, he has become basically just like any other dictator. The, the reason why is not because he's a typical Latin dictator. That's th That can be a very uh, false judgment, even though you can characterize him like that. But the fact of the matter is that Ortega's reading of authority and political management, governance, requires that he has control of civil society, of the private sector, of the political institutions, as a way to achieve his vision. His vision is a very simple one. It's one in which there is a homogeneous um, political landscape in Nicaragua. We have been following and tracking on this program Venezuela and its changes 
before Chavez died. And if you look at the script in Venezuela, it seems to have followed a very similar pattern to what has gone on in Nicaragua, a country that we have not followed as much because the public reaction has been very different in Nicaragua. So I wonder, is Venezuela playing from the Nicaraguan playbook, or has Daniel Ortega taken the script that Chavez started to write in Venezuela and followed that script? I, I would say none of the above. Ortega has always been very clear that he wants to rule Nicaragua. Ever since he lost the elections in 1990, he claimed he will rule from below. And between 1990 and 1999, he did that by creating a system of alliances, little by little, with different sectors of society. The first one was to maintain a relatively good standing with the army. Second, he moved on by reconciling with the Catholic Church. Then he moved on to make an alliance with the, the evangelical church. Then he started to make uh, tactical approaches with um, the former Contras, the, the counter-revolutionaries who fought against him in the 1980s. And finally, in 1999, he reached a pact with then Arnoldo Aleman, president of Nicaragua, to divide basically the political system into a two-party system that will create a victory first, electoral victory with 35% of the votes, as long as you will keep a distance of five points difference uh, between the opponent and the other party. And that will give him certainty that he could win a next election. And that certainty was achieved. He won an election in 2007, and from that point on, he little by little began to strengthen his political clout. Um, he was relatively lucky, if you can say that word, or fortunate, that this is the period when Hugo Chavez comes into strength into Venezuela and shares an ideology uh, of anti-imperialism, anti-US um, influence in Latin America. And enjoys the support of Venezuela through the oil program that Nicaragua is still benefiting from. This oil program provided for um, revenues through the state that will go directly into the government. Um, that revenue today is the basis for all of these subsidies. It's perhaps $50 million a year, half of which is spent on subsidies. And so if you look at the trajectory between 2007 to the present, the, the past 10 years, what Daniel Ortega has done has widened his uh, influence. And again, this is an obsession of this autocrat who believes that what you need to do in the country is have a very homogeneous society ruled by one ideological position, that of Sandinismo, that focuses on agriculture, clientelism, and subsidies. And that's his, his concept of, of a fully functioning state within the context of a democracy. Everything else doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the legislature, it doesn't matter the laws, it doesn't matter the rule of law in general, as long as it serves his purpose. And his strategy basically is that, to use, make use of, um, you can call it Rasputinian strategies. Blackmailing political and economic elites keeps opposition and civil society divided, 
intimidate civil society organizations and coerce those who try to um, do something about his rule. And this is what happened basically in the past three months when he dissolved practically the opposition in the legislature in a way that now he controls over 80% of the votes in Congress. Beyond what the Supreme Court allowed him to do in Congress, um, they've also nullified the candidacy of Eduardo Montalegre, a longtime liberal leader in Nicaragua. And now we have Pedro Reyes, who's going to stand as the leader of the liberals approved by the Nicaraguan Supreme Court. Uh, what can you tell us about Reyes? And I wonder, some people have called Reyes a puppet of the Sandinistas and of Daniel Ortega. Would you agree with that characterization? The common, the, the common word in the street is that he's a, he's an insect, he's a bloodsucker insect. He benefited from something he had no control of. He was given handout the opportunity to run for president without any options of winning. Thank you so much, Manuel Orozco of the Inter-American Dialogue, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype from San Jose, Costa Rica. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse, and thanks to Tom Lauer for his production assistance. For technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music